Thank you. Um, I'm Madhuri Perry. Uh, I work for AWS Professional Services. I've been here close to four years. Uh, I also lead the IoT Edge practice here, and today I wanted to share with you some of the learnings we had in the past couple of years with different engagements involving specifically vision and camera systems at the edge when you deploy the machine learning algorithms from the cloud. And to reduce the scope, we particularly chose the remote monitoring use cases, and we'll go through that shortly. So the agenda we are going to start with is first uh, clearly narrate to you what the business use cases are. And with that, we will show you the architecture we are going to march towards and then break down each of the architecture components and do a deep dive with each of those, followed by uh, sharing some of the methodologies that we have seen work in these kind of projects that you take on. And then we will wrap it up with uh, best practices and what pitfalls to avoid in these kind of projects. So with that said, the first uh, thing I wanted to set the frame of mind for is the remote monitoring use cases that we came across. So there are four key themes that we wanted to focus on for today's session. The first one to the left here that you see is the manufacturing use case, which specifically focuses on the quality control of the products on an assembly line. So when you have a vision system, a camera or um, any kind of uh, lens-based device that's looking at the assembly line, what you're looking for is the machine learning algorithm that's running on that system needs to be able to uh, look at the passing batches of cookies in this case um, and be able to find out which one is not good enough to pass the quality control and be able to take the action to pick it out of the assembly line. That's what the ML is giving the intelligence for. So when you look at that particular use case in the bottom part of the spectrum, you see that it's a very low latency tolerant use case, which means you be you take decisions very, very quickly. And then, which also translates into a very high compute requirement, which means you need a very powerful chip that's able to perform multiple inferences in a single second. That's what we are looking for. So as you move towards the right, what you notice is really the latency requirement kind of um, is more and more tolerant of the uh, lesser speed and then the compute power correspondingly starts decreasing as well. So the, to give an additional insight into leak monitor, for example, when high schools and colleges or even commercial buildings close for a period of time, whether it is uh, spring breaks or summertime or any time offs during the college being out, what happens is uh, in winter times specifically, there would be uh, bursts of pipes which could cause leakages for them. And these kind of uh, go into the predictive analytics use cases. So what happens is the machine learning algorithm is looking at time series data with the vision uh, images to see whether there is a increasing leak area and then notify appropriate personnel to take uh, action immediately. So in these cases, the latency requirement is not as high as in the manufacturing, but still you need um, 
some form of uh, moderate latency with a medium compute power there. And the far right basically is a meter reading use case that we uh, see usually in uh, offshore oil wells and so on. And in these cases, what you are looking for is a periodic noting down of the readings on the gauges or valves, which basically are uh, used for monitoring and regulatory uses. So this is the theme of the um, session today as we go forward. Um, so the architecture that we will look at today will focus on these four key elements that are part of the processing pipeline. The first one is collecting the data. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. In this, we are going to look at both the hardware systems as well as the software systems that are involved in gathering the vision data from the edge um, in, into the pipeline of your architecture. The second uh, phase that you are going to look at is the processing itself, which is the machine learning algorithm that's going to uh, work on this ingested data that you are uh, getting from your camera systems. And this is where the gateway systems, which have the green grass software, uh, will come into the picture. We'll look into that as well. And the third and fourth, probably you're already fluent in the cloud. This is where the rules engine comes in for taking action on your data. And then the analysis piece, which comes in for uh, using systems like QuickSight or Kibana or whatever your analytics uh, visualization tool is. Then with this, what we are going to see here, here, first is the camera systems on the left. They're providing the data into gateway server, which is essentially running the AWS Greengrass service. So Greengrass service, for those of you um, who are familiar with it, it provides the compute runtime um, for you at the edge. And it acts as a gateway at the edge to connect back into cloud and send your data upwards. And this one is going to be the core of what you will need for collecting data. Once you collect the data, you have these components, which we'll look into when we break it down, uh, have the machine learning algorithms you develop in the cloud to the right, and then you basically push the machine learning model, which has been trained in the cloud, down to the edge. And that's what you're seeing on to the left. And then what happens is you take the machine learning algorithm performs some inference and those inference results are posted back into the cloud to uh, take some action and that's what the device gateway is used for with the rules engine. Then the last but not the least is the analysis aspect. So you will see a variant of this slide in the next one and I'll tell to you tell you what the key difference is. <coughs> Excuse me. So Again, the same thing, green grass is there, then you have machine learning algorithms, and the act and analyze are the same. The key difference is the smart camera device itself is acting as a gateway. And so the left side cameras have gone away. All the intelligence now resides on the camera device. The reason we uh, called this out as a separate architecture pattern is the Earlier slide works with brownfield devices, which means if you have um, systems and vision camera systems that are installed 20, 30 years ago, those still need to be able to provide you data on which you can act 
intelligently on with your machine learning algorithms. That's the first slide. And this one is the later generation of cameras, which are smart cameras, which are able to um, host your entire gateway software on the camera itself. So with that said, I'm going to hand it over to Kamal here, and uh, he's going to cover the hardware aspect. Thanks, Madhuri. Thanks, everybody, for joining. I hope uh, everyone's having a great reInvent this year. It's amazing how much bigger these rooms keep getting. A little bit about myself. My name is Kamal Garg. I'm a partner manager at AWS. I've been with Amazon for five years. And in particular, I focus on hardware, strategic hardware relationships for AI and ML services. So I'm really excited, and pardon the pun, to talk to you about this topic today because I'm going to really focus on what I call the cutting edge, and that is the idea of collecting data at the edge. Now, for the collect phase of this architecture, we need to first establish what physical systems for the ingestion of data we're going to use. In the case of the theme of this talk, it's going to be for the ingestion of video data. So essentially, that means we have to pick a camera. Most opportunities for remote monitoring at the edge just require sufficient computer vision equal to human perception. Now, it's much more likely that over time, we will have use cases that require almost superhuman perception, so frame rates or resolutions that the, exceed what the human eye could do by itself. Also, there are use cases we're not going to cover today, but much of what we discuss apply to use cases where we're ingesting other forms of similar time-encoded data. This can include millimeter wave, radar, LIDAR, audio, vibration, and then multimodal use cases where we take non-time-encoded data and we add more richness to the data we're ingesting by sensor-fusing data with video, millimeter wave radar, audio vibration. So when we think about the fastest path to market today, it is to take or repurpose existing devices and ingest video from cameras or machine vision systems that are already installed. The fastest path to market is to essentially take gateways, uh, IoT servers, industrial PCs, or edge servers, and repurpose them into machine vision systems. And by repurposing them, what we mean is typically adding additional network capacity for IP camera streams, frame grabber cards for other industrial protocols like GIGI, USB 3.0. Also, it might involve uh, adding additional acceleration beyond the x86 acceleration provided on the device by adding GPGU, most frequently adding NVIDIA-based GPGUs. This is clearly the fastest path to market because what we have today is an established base of hundreds of millions of cameras installed today and over 100 million new IP cameras installed or sold every year that though these cameras themselves lack sufficient processing power for inference on the edge, when connected to machine vision systems, those machine vision systems can perform inference on those video streams. This is clearly the fastest path to market. And most often than not, these systems are available off the shelf or customized off the shelf from an ODM. However, we're starting to see a lot of evolution in this space. One evolution I'm excited by is x86 gateways that were previously maybe uh, powered by or accelerated by GPGU. Now we're starting to see uh, ARM-based products like NVIDIA Jetson coming out in their own gateways. And these devices are purpose-built for inference and computation at the edge. So we're excited by these because it, again, lowers the amount of power consumption as well as the cost of the device. So we're getting more cost-optimized and more power-efficient performance over time. And we're especially excited by the further evolution we're going to see in the next year or two 
in this class of devices. And what we're seeing is even more aggressively efficient uh, SOCs or systems on chips where we have ARM CPUs providing application control and orchestration. And then we're seeing image processing and inference offload onto dedicated hardware accelerators, whether they're codecs, digital signal processors, or neural network uh, accelerators. Examples of this include Amberella, which has a video codec for image signal processing, and their CV flow engine for inference offload. TI Sitara, which has the TI DSP plus a new EVE embedded vision engine for inference offload. And what these chipsets allow you to do is perform inference ever more efficiently at lower cost. What we're starting to see with these lower, more efficient ARM chipsets is that you can now actually embed camera systems in other devices. Embedded systems are those systems that have a different purpose, whether it be mechanical or OT, but now have this compute and vision component included in them. A really simple example could be your cash register of the future, which isn't uh, a set of numbers on a keyboard or an HMI screen, but it's simply a stereo camera that recognizes the object that you're holding in your hand and then assigns the price to it. And the way you would do that is with an embedded vision camera and compute on the edge. So I'm going to double, I'm going to go back to Madhuri's earlier slide where she highlighted four use cases. And we're going to double click on each of those use cases and talk through the kind of considerations we should take when we're selecting image systems or camera systems for each of those use cases. Starting with quality control. So in quality control, I think the example Madhuri gave was an assembly line where a product is moving at a very high rate, the rate of production. And yet you want to use computer vision to be able to detect, uh, detect defects, do object counting, be able to count based on you know, how many red cookies there are and how many white cookies there are, et cetera. So in this environment, one thing you don't have to worry about is changing the field of vision. Your field of vision is going to be fixed. And it's probably going to be a very large field of vision or a very narrow field of vision, air scan, light scan. 3D cameras are also quite prevalent in this space. What's critical is that you have to have excellent, excellent image resolution, which means very large data files per frame and very, very high frame rates, because the frame rates have to essentially move at the speed of the assembly line. In this type of environment where you're in a factory and you have a mission-critical operation, you don't have a constraint on power. So what you're going to see in this use case are purpose-built industrial cameras or industrial camera modules that connect via special industrial camera protocols like GIGI, USB 3.0, to machine vision systems, which are, again, usually x86-based IPCs or edge servers. And the goal here is to maximize your inference performance across multiple streams of data on very large data sets operating at very low latency. We measure performance either by inferred frames per second or accuracy, or more often than not, you want to do it by both. Lastly, we should consider that the whole purpose of this machine vision system isn't just to give you an IT prediction, but to actually take those predictions and integrate them with existing operational technology systems. We call them OT systems. By OT systems, in the factory, that might mean your HMI, your CNC machine, your assembly line. In enterprise use cases, an OT system can mean your access control system, your HVAC system, et cetera. Let's take a, a slightly different use case, but very different dynamic. In the safety and hazard use case, we're seeing the IP camera types are much more relevant than the industrial camera types we saw in quality control. And by IP camera types, 
we only have to look around all over this hotel we're walking around and we see a variety of bullet cams, box cams, dome cams. These cameras are ubiquitous. There are hundreds of millions of these IP cameras installed on the world today and again, 100 million of these cameras installed or sold every year. These cameras come in variety of form factors and shapes. They're highly ruggedized, but they can also not be ruggedized. They sometimes have the, the, uh, the same kind of chassis you see in your consumer Wi-Fi cameras at home. Uh, these cameras can be indoor, outdoor. They can be situated on drones, on moving platforms, on trains, and the tractor trailers of trucks. More often than not with these cameras, though, What's critical, because of the scale at which they're deployed, is that they must operate at much lower power than is required with an AC-DC drop. So in this, case, in this case, these cameras are often PoE powered, or in some cases, even battery powered. And what's critical here is scale. These cameras are sold at scale. And so there are ability, the, the, the flexibility they offer you is that you can find the right camera for the right visual spectrum you're looking for or the right field of vision that fits that particular need. And again, connect them to machine vision systems or edge servers to provide inference capability. But increasingly, and we're going to see these cameras hitting the market in the next year, these same IP cameras are now going to be powered by these new, much more powerful SOC, which allow you to perform inference on the camera using hardware software acceleration. And Madhuri is going to double click on that in her later slides. These next two use cases are actually very similar. In these cases, what you're doing is you're using secondary sensor network or cameras to provide you intelligence in a legacy industrial environment, what I would call industry 2.0, right? These are non-connected valves, gauges, meters. And instead of going back and uh, you know, taking out what was there before and putting in new connected devices, you can use cameras to provide you intelligence and connected intelligence where there wasn't that intelligence before. In these cases, though, you don't have the ability to have stage lighting or a flash. What you're probably going to need, first of all, is a camera that has highly specialized ISP, either for denighting, noise reduction, uh, dewarping effects, so that the image it captures in a variety of environmental conditions is accurate. Second, these devices are going to be deeply embedded. You might need cameras that are deeply embedded in your operational technology stack in a factory or in other environments, in your ducts, in the tractor trailer of a vehicle. And in these cases, these deeply embedded devices sometimes may need to be purpose-built. And what do I mean by purpose-built? Certainly, you can buy ruggedized cameras off the shelf. But if what you're monitoring is OT that lasts for 20 years, meant to last for 20 years, you want a camera that's there as long as that operational technology is there. And if your goal is to reduce the amount of maintenance you provide to that OT, you want a camera that you don't have to actually maintain more than the OT you're trying to reduce the maintenance on, right? So in this case, you may end up finding yourself working with design engineering firms, hardware SIs, ODMs, or contract manufacturers to build cameras that are custom-built, purpose-built for that specific use case. Often, more often than not, especially in industrial use cases, these cameras are going to have what we call low FIT, high POH. That's low failure in time, high power on hours. That means you turn it on, they work, and they work that way for 10, 15 years. These cameras can be powered by BOE, but there are use cases where these cameras can be powered by batteries as well. Lastly, they can be ruggedized or purpose-built for extreme locations. And extreme locations can include wellheads in the Arctic, where you wouldn't even want to send somebody in the winter. Finally, I'm going to conclude uh, this part of the discussion by thinking about other considerations that we should take into consideration when selecting IoT cameras. First, 
Really, even though the fastest path to market today, for sure, is take existing devices and connect them to machine vision systems, I think we should be thinking about the future and these newer chipsets with machine learning inference-specific hardware accelerators. And you should be thinking about how you can take what you have today and over time decrease the cost of the hardware and increase the efficacy of the use case by using this newer technology. So keep an eye to the future. And if you're going to work with these chipsets today, take into consideration that there is added complexity around hardware acceleration that comes with that. I think it's super important to define the outcomes you want to achieve up front. You should have an understanding of what your target inferred frames per second is, as well as power consumption, cost, and how much data you want to gain from these cameras. For example, in a quality control use case, you're going to want high inferred frames per second, very high accuracy. In a meter reading use case, you might be OK with just a few inferred frames per minutes, per hours. And that can drastically change the bomb of the cameras you're purchasing. Understanding and managing the connectivity environment. So I think a very simple use case to understand why connectivity is important is if you're putting a camera on a remote wellhead in the Arctic or on an offshore sea platform, of course, connectivity might be limited by satellite or microwave. But think about this. Even in a factory environment, if you did not have cameras there before and you're now installing these high-quality industrial camera modules, multiple camera modules per, uh, per industrial gateway, multiple industrial gateways, all interconnected with your ERP systems, the amount of data that you are now sending over your network is significantly incremental to what was there before. And you should take that into account as well. So connectivity can be both in connected environments and disconnected environments. Lastly, think about whether you can go with off-the-shelf systems or purpose-built systems. Again, I always encourage everybody, we have a bias for action at AWS. The fastest path to market is to leverage what's off-the-shelf. Often these are x86 gateways that can connect to existing cameras. In the case of safety hazard, they're an existing plethora of IP cameras. And next year, you'll see increasing numbers of smart IP cameras or AI cameras available off the shelf. But in industrial OT, IoT use cases, it may be better in the long run to purpose-built a device that meant to last for your particular use case for multiple years. If you, do, if you go in that direction, realize that there's an additional level of complexity, and you'll need to work with design engineers, systems integrators, ODM or CM to enable that. And then lastly, before I hand this back to Madhuri, I just want to leave everybody here with a call to action, is if you're starting on this journey and you're thinking about what am I going to do on this bleeding edge, how am I going to start this journey, I'd like everyone here to visit the AWS Partner Device Catalog. We have machine vision systems, we have uh, IP cameras, we have smart cameras, and we have uh, embedded vision development kits that are available in this catalog, and all of these devices are certified for AWS Greengrass, SageMaker Neo, or AWS Kinesis Video Streams. And that's a great starting point for you to find out which devices might work for your particular use case. With that, I'm going to hand this back to Madhuri. Thanks, Madhuri. Thank you, Kamal. So now that we, uh, thank you, Kamal. Uh, thanks for covering the hardware aspect. So we are going to switch gears into the one layer above, which is the software element of it. Now you um, think of this scenario where, let's take this hall for example. You have installed like 20 cameras around and you need to start ingesting the data from all of these cameras onto a gateway system that resides in some corner in a, on a shelf somewhere. How do you know what is the IP address of every single camera that you have installed? 
that at scale, if you look at it, thousands of systems, it can be a really daunting task. So the way we would do that is, if you remember earlier, I spoke of a green grass uh, service at the edge on the gateway. And what we are going to do is have a compute Lambda deployed on green grass, and that's going to scan our network and get back the IP addresses of all these devices. The way it does it is leveraging this SSDP or WS discovery-based protocols. And many of these IP cameras are compliant with the ONWIF standard. And what that means is um, what we are going to see in the next slide. So this here is a sample code uh, that we have with node ONWIF. What it's doing here uh, in the line number two from the top is it's importing the node ONWIF library. What does, how does ONWIF operate before we go into this? The way it works is the Lambda, which is on the gateway, which is deployed uh, with green grass, is going to send multicast packets across your network and going to call those as discovery packets. Now, every single camera that is IP compliant, or ONWIF compliant, excuse me, is going to send back a discovery response with all of its uh, identification information. That will include things like IP address and uh, what model it is, what firmware it has, and so on. And that's what we are highlighting with these rectangular boxes, right? The node ONWIF library already has all of this intelligence built into it. So it's going to create um, these multicast packets and send it over the network for you. It will take about three seconds for the network cameras to respond back. And then once they respond back, it's going to catalog all of the information that camera sent back in a good array that it can parse and save it later. Uh, for those of you who are already fluent with Greengrass, it does have a feature called um, secret manager store locally as well. So any information that you receive from camera, if you don't want to send it back to the cloud because it's a local network information and cloud has nothing to do with it, you could store it locally and still continue to access to make the connection for the video feeds. So in my lab environment, I used a Jetson Nano with a Vivotech camera. Uh, Jetson Nano has the AWS Greengrass on it, and the Vivotech camera is my IP-based camera, and this is how the return information comes through, uh, excuse me, in the code. Like you can see, it sends some URL with the Vivotech model, IP address, the port it's listening on, and so on. So this is how the first step of discovering your edge devices that are collecting the information happens. Now we go to the next level. What is that? Once you have the IP address, what are you going to do with it? Now you need to connect to the camera to that IP address and start getting the video feeds. And that's what we are doing here. OpenCV is a very common library, probably every data scientist and many engineers do as well. Um, OpenCV is the example that I chose here, but it's obtaining a RTSP feed in the first rectangular box, and it's connecting with the username password for that camera model with the IP address that I just received from the camera and looking to read out the frames. So earlier when Kamal spoke, uh, he spoke about the frame rate. So the, every video feed that comes in comes at certain frames, which is, uh, think of it like a picture, right? 
for those of you who are not familiar with this. And this picture rate, you're getting 30 frames per second, for example. Each of these 30 frames, your machine learning algorithm has to look, analyze, and see whether it's looking for a value of a meter reading or an object or a cat or a dog or whatever in the frame, that's what is happening. However, what it is, is when you do this in the cloud, probably everything is hunky-dory and you are able to get all the frames and be done. But when you deploy this at the edge, this is where it gets tricky. Uh, so I just did a sample test, not, nothing official benchmarking. If you use OpenCV and just do the video processing, I was able to get two frames per second inference. So the machine learning algorithm on my Nano was able to do two frames processing per second. But if you use the hardware vendor provided hardware accelerations and the ingest libraries, um, in my case, it was DeepStream SDK from NVIDIA. I was able to process 52 frames a second. Like you can see, there is a huge amount of processing performance difference that you'll get between libraries like this and what the chip vendor provides and exposes in the form of APIs. We'll go more into that in a second. But this should give you an idea how you're ingesting the video feed. So the video feed is now ready but you're wanting to get this connectivity back into the cloud, how do you do that? So probably you're already familiar for all the IoT devices, you generate your X509 certificates. Um, this is a 300 level talk, so I won't go into the depth here, that's not the focus of this talk, but just to tell our um, elements for the picture here, I'm going to go through this. So this is how the BOTO3 code looks like for creating a thing, associating the appropriate policies and um, making sure the certificate is activated. But just know that at the end of each of these steps, you have your IoT things available in cloud. In this case, for me, the gateway device is the only thing that I'm registering in the cloud. I do not need to register every single camera device in the cloud. I only need to register the camera device if it's one of those smart camera things that you saw in the architecture variant number two with the latest models. So now with this setup, um, I am ingesting the feeds, I have my thing set up, which means the next step is to get the machine learning model down. So before we go into the machine learning model, I do want to touch upon a piece of the architecture which is mostly um, not looked into when you're designing or creating these architectures, but becomes a huge problem when you start going at scale. This is what we have seen at least in the past couple of years. So we have a new service um, that we have launched just last week called Secure Tunneling. What that does is, from the cloud, usually you can't access these remote networks because they're behind a DMZ of some sort. You cannot uh, punch firewalls to enable that connectivity back, and many cases you won't have the ability to even open up a VPN. So in those cases, secure tunneling is a very good choice, in my opinion anyways, to consider. So the way it works is this. So first you have in the cloud something called a secure tunneling service. Um, I would encourage you to look at the breakout that goes into deep for this, but this is a very one slide overview of it. So you as a user who is sitting with access to networks is going to open up a connection 
um, by logging into an EC2 instance or even your laptop for that matter, which has this local proxy installed. Local proxy is also a binary that's provided by the secure tunneling services itself. So what you would do is now issue, um, the next step is you have your remote devices um, available as well. And in the gateway device, you have the local proxy installed there as well. So the first command you would issue is something called an open tunnel, which is an API call to the secure tunneling service. It returns back with a tunnel ID and a source and destination tokens. And the destination tokens are delivered to the target device through a MQTT topic. So as you can see, there is no firewall rule here. And then what happens is once the destination device receives this token, it's starting up the local proxy on your target gateway. And then it will make a connection back to the cloud. Now, next step, what happens is the user will also make a similar connection back into the source device. And now the final thing is basically both of the connections are made from source and the target into the cloud without any firewall rules being punched. So you are able to troubleshoot if a camera feed stops coming in for half an hour or one hour, whatever your KPIs are, you get alerted that I'm not getting any inferences. At that time, you go in and start troubleshooting using this mechanism. And this basically is very high importance in any telecom fields or anywhere where there are truck rolls happening. That's a term you will hear where they want to save on the cost um, for sending a physical dispatch technician to see what's wrong with the device. And um, that's one element of it. Coming back to our main focus here is the processing aspect. So with that, what that means is the orange boxes here are the ones that are focusing on the process aspect, which I'll dive deep into now. The first element at the edge is the green grass service. The camera discovery piece, we spoke of it already. So the pieces now here that we're going to go through are the video ingest processor, that's the first one, and the machine learning model, how it gets there. And the third piece is really the one in the cloud itself. So the ones on your left are the ones that are performing inference using the machine learning model. And the ones on the right are the machine learning models that are being trained. So once the training finishes, you are deploying to the edge to perform inference and the other usual candidates here with the act and analyze piece are the remaining components. So when you start with the machine learning processing, there are again uh, three significant steps that you have to take. The first one is you develop the model in SageMaker. Ideally, you can develop in any Jupyter notebook or whatever your method of developing is. I took SageMaker for my example here. The second thing you do, this is after developing a model, usually this is where the journey stops for most of the data scientists. And this is where the work gets really tricky when you talk of edge. And that's where the optimization has to happen for the model to run on the chipset on the target device. And this is where SageMaker Neo is one of the services. We will also go through that. And then you want to make sure that you are using your inference results at the edge as well. So when you start the model development, many times you only consider what's on the left. 
you don't even look into the things on the right until you really have to do a field deployment. And in our experience, that's a really uh, time-consuming uh, effort, and you will have a lot more what-ifs and I-wish uh, moments than uh, if you did consider this in the beginning. So what you want to do, the reason I say that is, for example, if you take a Qualcam, Qualcomm chipset, it supports models like TensorFlow and CAFE and ONNX. So if you are developing a model with XGBoost or something else, that might not be the right fit for you. So you need to choose a chipset which really supports the frameworks that you're intending to deploy at the edge. And that's where your camera selection and the hardware selection process that Kamal went over becomes really important. So you get the idea. So you pick um, both the framework and the chipset. Now you go to the next step. And this is what a usual life cycle of a model deployment to edge goes through. The leftmost is data preparation. Um, any data scientist would tell you that's like, this is the very critical element of making sure the data is clean and the better data you can provide to the model, the better the inference capabilities are. Then you train your model in the cloud, you create your model, and then now um, the model is ready and data scientist work usually ends there. But when you are taking it to the edge, you also need to think of this optimization with the Neo as one of the service, but there are other ways to optimize. We'll cover that too. And then take it to the green grass device at the edge or the gateway at the edge, and then take the inference results back to the cloud. That's what completes the life cycle to give you the business insights that you need to be able to improve whatever process you're trying to optimize. Now, what I'm showing here is I started with a SageMaker uh, notebook model, a standard uh, SageMaker notebook. And I started with an image here, a Docker image, with the image classification use case. And this Docker image, I'm retrieving it, and then I'm downloading the data, which is a Caltech data set that I use, Caltech 256, and uploading it to S3. And then I split the data into training data and validation data. Like you can see, this data, six, uh, data set 256 means it's able to recognize 256 classes of images. And basically, because I already have the model, I'm training it. I'm trying to set some parameters called hyperparameters. This will control how big the model will get and how faster uh, it is, what's the accuracy at the edge. So the number of layers here, it's, uh, I'm using only 18 layers for my Jetson Nano, which is itself um, pushing the envelope for a 4GB, but still um, the number of layers is something you can control based on the gateway power that you have available and the inference speed you get out of it. Like you can see, the number of layers can be adjusted and the layers that it supports are really a lot of other combinations that I just highlighted. The next critical element is the image shape. This is a ResNet model. It uses 224 by 224 image size, and there are three channels, uh, um, RGB in this case, and classes are 257. 
So once I know my training parameters, I basically am feeding this in the form of a Boto script here, and it's basically submitting this job with all the training parameters that I just defined. And it's using a MLP to extra large instance, that's training cost, Probably when you look at the overall scheme of things, training is a much smaller element than the inference cost that you will incur. So, and the record IO is one of the format of the videos that I'm using for training as well. Once the training job uh, is created or submitted to SageMaker, it's going to uh, kick off this job and it's just waiting on the describe option here to see if the job is ready and then kick it off. Once the job finishes, it's just going to say that it has finished training the model. So now the model is ready for performing a deployment. So what happens? In my case, like I said, I used a Jetson Nano. So this is how it looks under the hood in the Nano device, right? When you look at this slide, it has a lot of boxes, so let me walk you through it. There are three layers that I want you to absorb from this. The bottom layer, the white line in the middle is uh, what distinguishes or separates the application layer from the hardware elements of it or closer to hardware elements. The bottom piece of it, like you see CPU, NV decoder, NV DEC, uh, GPU, uh, vision accelerator, image signal processor, ISP, all these elements perform a certain function um, in your image frame that you received. So when you see, for example, NV DEC, NVIDIA decoder. This basically is performing the top activity of the application layer, which is decode functionality in the image. Um, as you are processing a lot more data, you will see decoding can also take up a lot more cycles in your image um, machine learning processing pipeline. So the things like before even you hit the sixth box in the top, which is DNN, where the actual detection and inference is happening, there is a significant amount of heavy lifting that the chip has to perform on the image itself. And these include scaling, de-warping, cropping the image, and so on. So all these activities, why am I telling you this story? In order to leverage the hardware accelerator in the chip itself, you need to know um, the middle layer, which is highlighted as Tensor RT, that's the one, the runtime uh, layer that NVIDIA provides. It's an API call. So as your application is looking for these decode and additional activities, it needs to leverage the APIs in Tensor RT to get the most out of your hardware underneath. So the concept as you are walking away from this is, in order to optimize your application on the chip itself, you need to be able to know the API layer in the middle to get the most out of what's in the chip below. So similar example with Amberella chip here. It's a CV22 chip that we are using. The bottom two are the image processing engine and the CV flow, which is used for inference offload. And then as you go up, you can use the Amberella tool chain to get the um, accelerations at the runtime layer through ARM NN. And as you go up, you can see that's where the machine learning models and frameworks come into picture. Now, when you think of this with so many frameworks and so many chipsets, it's just going to explode the number of combinations. And there is no way um, 
you can keep up with the deep level of expertise on all these combinations. So one way to think of it is leverage any um, managed services out there that will take off all of this heavy lifting for you. And that's where Neo comes in. So Neo is a one-year-old service. It was announced at last reInvent. It does provide some combinations, and we are working based on customer feedback for the rest of them. But what it does essentially is it starts with the leftmost. It takes the model that you give it, and it will parse the model. And it's going to uh, convert it into an intermediate format. And what does that intermediate format give me? It's basically focusing that intermediate format on two critical operations. The box number two, which is optimizing the graph. What that means is it's pruning the graph based on the machine learning model. For those of you who are new in the space, there are many layers and operators that a model has. In my case, it's ResNet 18, right? So it has 18 different layers through which the nodes are formed and the connections are created. However, not all of those nodes are required during inference. Some of them might be needed in only training. And that's what graph pruning operation with optimized graph does. And then there are and many more. I just highlighted one example. And the other thing that it does is it optimizes the tensors. What that means is you saw that middle layer of tensor RT runtime, right? Neo also uses the TVM, which basically leverages that. And it, what it does is it basically is uh, optimizing the mat matrix or the math, a mathematical object dimension, the tensor dimension, in a way that is best for the chipset. Uh, for example, in case of Qualcomm, it optimizes it for the DSP. Um, and in case of NVIDIA, it's whatever the underlying equivalent hardware component is. You get the idea. So it's basically optimizing in these two critical areas, and it generates a code base which is ready for you to take it to the edge. Now this, um, how does this look in my example? So when I submit my model, the one that I generated earlier, I chose the data specification dimensions. Like I said, it was a three-channel image, one, three. 224 by 224 is the image uh, dimension, uh, width and the height. And then it's a MXNet and Jetson Nano. That's all you provide to the Neo service. And then what happens is the top, what you are seeing here, is my model input that I gave to Neo. What you're seeing below is what Neo produced for me. If you see the third uh, line item in the second part here, compile.so, that's my shared object that it created for the Jetson Nano hardware. Now I take this. Now it's ready to go to the green grass um, service at the edge. So there are two main things I need to do. The first thing is I need to write a lambda, which knows how to invoke this particular model, compiled object that I just did. And the second thing is I need to give this particular uh, lambda access to the NVIDIA local resources on the chipset itself. So how does that look? So in order for the model to be loaded by Neo, it uses a common runtime. Instead of choosing its chip-specific runtime, you're using a common runtime. That's the Neo DLR. And that's what I'm installing here with the sudo uh, pip install command. 
Once I install the DLR, the Greengrass Lambda will load that runtime into its memory. For those of you who have done any compilation-based programming, like Java compiler or C or any of these, or even Go, you will know that um, in order to load the runtime object, you need some form of a underneath, underneath runtime that needs to be available. And as I'm going to look through the DLR, this is the Lambda uh, code that I have used. First, I import, this is a Python Lambda code, and I use um, the DLR runtime model, import it in the first rectangle box, and the bottom um, rectangle I'm saying, make sure you run this model by leveraging the GPU on the Nano. That's all I'm saying. And Greengrass actually takes care of downloading the model from the S3 bucket, and it um, puts it in the local path there with the slash Greengrass slash ML models. And then the next thing that it um, does is this model is going to be invoked with the ingest feed lambda that we got, right? Um, the other lambda that we deployed with the OpenCV RTSP ingester, and that's going to provide the data in MQTT topic, which will be received to this particular Lambda, and it's going to make a prediction. So uh, the, remember, there are two steps that I was telling about. One is the Lambda wrapper, and the second one is Lambda needs to have the local resource access on the NVIDIA Jetson, and that's the access that I have created in the Lambda. And then the subscriptions are the one where I'm saying all the inference results that this Lambda is producing, the predictions that it's producing, have to be pushed up to the cloud, and that's what I'm defining here. And once it's in the cloud, it's all um, happy, your own turf, so you can control with all the rule engine, whether you want to ingest into DynamoDB or uh, SNS or take some other action by persisting in S3 or what have you. And then finally, you will analyze these results to be able to uh, use for further analysis, putting it in your data lake, or whatever you want to do with that business data. So the methodologies that have worked when doing these projects, like you can see, it can get really complex really fast. Um, you start with a Raspberry Pi, and you think you came to the end, but you haven't even uh, gotten to the critical pain points yet. So the methodology that worked is always start with the cloud piece. Make sure your model works. You figure out whether the model is going to be good for the chipset that you're thinking of. And then immediately get a dev kit for that chipset that you're thinking and deploy it onto that. Once you are deploying to the dev kit, you'll figure out all these uh, pieces about performance and accuracy, the size of the model, access to the resources, all the bumps that could be in the road further down. So these are most of the time addressed at this time. Once you do this, then you think about the field trial. This is where probably the troubleshooting becomes important to you. And you start thinking of the scale. How do I onboard these many devices at scale? How do I troubleshoot all of these devices at scale? These are the things. And what are the KPIs I'm looking for? How do I know if the device is even working? How do I know if inference is working? Where is the problem? All these 
become evident in a limited field trial. And then you go into a scaled field trial, which probably will expose further um, elements like connectivity that Kamal was referencing about. Uh, one side could have IP connectivity, other one could have LoRa connectivity or what have you. This is where all of those elements come into picture. And finally, you take to the production rollout. So as you are going through all of these, some of the best practices that we have seen here are you do want to make sure you are very crystal clear on the business requirements. There will always be somebody who will suggest, uh, let's go with uh, more inference or more um, frames per second, things like that. But in the end, at the end, all of that is going to translate into hardware bomb cost for you. So you need to know if you really need those frames per second for business reasons, or you are just you know, trying to play with those toys for a faster accuracy and speed. Um, so that's one of the things. The second thing is, um, in our experience, it's better if you do a loose coupling of the hardware. What I mean by that is camera systems and gateway if one of them fails, you should be able to replace plug and play rather than having all in one, which probably will increase um, your cost of replacement. At the same time, there are scenarios where you have to go with all in one systems uh, in cases of things like sensor fusion, where all of those operations have to happen on the same MCU microcontroller on the gateway itself. So um, make sure that you are um, vetting out those processes or questions early on in the cycle. And think of the troubleshooting like we spoke of. And make sure that the hardware customizations that you are doing for off-the-shelf systems versus custom-designed components and the firmware-level changes you're asking are um, minimal or on done only when required. In the sense, it, um, if you have a team which is heavy on the hardware and light on the software, it's easy to go down to the hardware level and make assembly level change. But the problem is, as you are pushing the code changes through the pipeline, your OTA and firmware update process have to be much more robust than your software pipeline for machine learning model. So the velocity of change for each of these layers is different, so make sure you keep that in mind. And uh, the tool set and the reusable libraries that you choose for all of these projects, um, try to choose something that's not a unicorn and that has enough brain power and community power that kind of can answer any questions. And if suddenly some inference speed benchmarking number is two seconds and you are receiving two minutes, then somebody should be able to address that question for you if you don't have direct chain of support back to the chip vendor. And make sure you follow a software pipeline-based approach similar to how you do in the cloud. What I mean by that is today your model might be doing only a face detection, but tomorrow you might want to add a gesture recognition or something else at the edge based on how your business insights are uh, directing you to. And in order to do all of this, you need to have a pipeline in the cloud which basically, oh, I finished my model development, I fed it to Neo, I can deploy this in a limited field trial to these devices of a certain firmware to the edge and test it out. So you want to make sure you have that flexibility and you're not um, moving as slow um, in the further iterations as well. 
So these are all some of the best practices uh, and pitfalls that you want to avoid with these kind of projects. To summarize, um, what we have seen is we started with collecting the data and then we did the processing of the data with machine learning and then you went through um, acting. This was very light in this session because it's a, a focus for another topic, not for today's edge focus topic. And the last one was analyzing the results. With that, we come to the end of this session. If you have any questions, uh, we are happy to uh, take those. And thank you for being here. Wonderful.